The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Thank you so much. That was a great start to the morning. I'm excited about this text. It's a it's a strange and can be confusing text. We're we're in John chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 22 and 23. Um, A couple of verses that should stand out to us, cause us to scratch our heads a bit and ask some questions. Um, But I think when we rightly see what's going on here, we'll see something really exciting, something weighty, awe-inspiring concerning the start of something new, a new kind of creation. And the significance and mission of the church. So let's, um, let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Asking the helper to give us understanding so that we might respond with hearts of worship. Let's pray now. Father, your word is truth. Jesus is truth. And we need your spirit to help us in our understanding. To help us see. What's going on in this passage? Why Jesus breathed on his disciples? What this means for them? What it, what it means for your church today? Please speak to our hearts. Give us eyes to see your glorious plan. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 20, we're going to be looking at verses 22 and 23. You know, before we read the scriptures, I just want to say... I love preaching, and I also love sitting under Pastor Bill's preaching, sitting under the preaching of God's Word. One of the things that I also enjoy is, um, is some traditions. One tradition that you may pick up on is um, when we read the Word of God, usually follow it with something like, this is God's Word. And when I'm sitting in that area under the preaching of God's word, I'll hear a few people say, thanks be to God. I love that response. And um, it's a good tradition. It's just a tradition. If you forget, that's okay. It's a good tradition because we want to highlight that God's word is special. We've come to hear God speak to us. His word is powerful. It is authoritative And so a proper response is to say, oh, thank you, Lord. Thanks be to God. So uh, please stand if you're able. Let's read God's word. And um, keep that in mind. I'd love to hear us pick up on this tradition and respond in that way. We're going to, let's start at verse 19 of John chapter 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, these verses create some questions, don't they? And if you know me, I love questions. Uh, Here are a few that come to mind. First of all, what is Jesus doing? What's the significance of him breathing on them? Uh, Does the Holy Spirit come upon these disciples at this point in time when Jesus breathes on them? Doesn't that happen at Pentecost, which is like 50 days from now? And us forgive sins? Isn't that God's job? Let's begin with a reminder. I want to begin with a reminder that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. And so like the Father and the Son, He too is eternal. There's only one God. God exists as three simultaneously eternal persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an it He is not a power or some impersonal force. He is God. We see this in Acts when Peter confronts Ananias, saying that he has lied to the Holy Spirit and then asks him, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. The reason I want to begin here is because sometimes I wonder if we wrongly think that the Holy Spirit's work only began at this point or or later, starting with the day of Pentecost. We hear Jesus say that when he goes away, he'll send the Holy Spirit as our helper. And we might wrongly think that, that this is when the Holy Spirit comes on the scene and that previously he wasn't doing much. No, God is one. He eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Redemptive history builds to this most significant point in time concerning Jesus. And a new covenant, a new kind of creation. But each member of the Godhead has always been active. The God. And Jesus was born at a particular point in time, in history. But John tells us that Jesus is the Word. And the Word was with God in the beginning. And the Word was God in the beginning. More specifically, He, Jesus, is God the Son. And by Him all things were made. At a point in time, the Father sent the Son... He sent the one who has always existed with the Father and the Holy Spirit to be born. To be born a real human man. And now, at this most significant of times where Jesus has accomplished the work that the Father sent him to do, now there is another sending. The sending of these disciples who are empowered by the sending of the Holy Spirit, who will indwell them and all future disciples of Christ. So the the Holy Spirit will come in a new way. But he has always been active. We see him in the very beginning, in Genesis 1, where the earth was 
formless and void, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. We see him back in Exodus 35, where we read of people being filled with the Spirit, so that they might have skill and intelligence and craftsmanship in the construction of the tabernacle. And speaking of the tabernacle, John picks up on this theme when he says Jesus dwelt among us, that he tabernacled among us. So in the Old Testament, people were, were temporarily filled with the Spirit to, to build the physical tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. Then God tabernacles among his people in the person of Jesus. And because of his spirit-filled ministry, because of his sacrifice and defeat of death, now the spirit permanently dwells in each of us, creating a new structure of God's presence in Christ's church. Paul said it this way, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? God communicates a lot of things in types and shadows that that point to greater realities to come. The presence of God with his people, it's a continual theme all throughout redemptive history. We see theophanies. We see a burning bush. We see a pillar of fire. We see glory clouds that communicate the presence of God among his people. The Ark of the Covenant, the tent or tabernacle, the temple, all have to do with the holy presence of God. And then God, the Son, took on flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among his people and after Jesus ascends in glory, he promises to, to send the Holy Spirit to indwell us so that we together become God's temple. God's, God's presence in the world, carrying on the mission of Jesus by declaring the truth, the only news whereby people are forgiven. It's exciting, isn't it? It's all connected. It all builds to this, this new creation of Jesus. This is the, the most significant point in all of history. Again, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the Spirit indwelt God's people to, to equip, to enable them, to bring them to faith in the promise of God's coming Messiah. But now there's, there's something new. Something added to this. Yes, he equips. Yes, he, he enables faith in Jesus. But now there's something new. Permanent. As our hearts become a permanent home. Forever connecting us to Jesus. Who will never leave us. Who will never forsake us. Oh, he, he indwelt the saints of old. But we need not worry as David worried when he prayed, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. No, now, instead of indwelling us for a time, 
for a task. Now, as a part of the new covenant, those who are saved are given a lasting guarantee, a seal, as the Spirit permanently indwells us. But when, when does this take place? That's part of the question here. When does this take place? Didn't Jesus say the helper wouldn't come in this way until he left? Until he ascended? And isn't, isn't Pentecost the fulfillment of this? Clearly it is. Okay, so <laughs> what's this breathing? What's with this breathing? Again, the Holy Spirit has always been active, but there's something new to come. Something new to come that will not happen until after the ascension, until the day of Pentecost. And this isn't to say that the Holy Spirit hasn't already been at work with these disciples prior to Jesus breathing on them. If we connect the Holy Spirit to saving faith, Old Testament saints and new, we would recognize that, that, that how else could Peter confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Jesus said it was the work of God who revealed this truth to Peter. This is the Holy Spirit at work. Saving faith, true belief on both sides of the cross has always and only been the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. And we see this in, in Peter's confession. We see it um, earlier in this uh, chapter of John as, as John himself goes into the empty tomb and seeing he believes. He has faith. The Holy Spirit opened his eyes to the evidence before him and enabled him to, to see with his heart, to have faith. So since the Holy Spirit brings us to faith in Christ, and since all of the Old Testament saints looked to the coming of the Messiah in faith, the Holy Spirit has always been active in bringing about faith. Okay, back to our question. In verse 22, we read that Jesus, in this room where some of the disciples were hiding, breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. What's he doing? Is he actually giving them at this point in time the specific indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Well, no. <laughs> no, he's not. Again, because Jesus said, if I do not go away, the helper will not come. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Also, look at the evidence. At Pentecost, what do we see? We see a massive change. We see the Spirit come upon them in power. And Peter preaches, you know, Peter who denies Christ now preaches boldly. And 3,000 people come to Christ. Here, when Jesus breathes on them, we don't see a transformation. In fact, in this chapter, eight days later, they're still afraid. They're still hiding in the same room. And Jesus comes to them, 
Thomas is there at that point in time. So there's no change going on. So to be clear, the Holy Spirit is always active. He's already present. He's enabling them to see. And when Jesus promises a future coming of the Spirit, helping them in a new way, indwelling, sealing, empowering them for the mission of the gospel, the establishing of his church, he's referring to something different. Which begins, is dramatically obvious on the day of Pentecost. Okay, so if this is not the fulfillment of his promise, then what is it? What's going on here? Why is he breathing on them? Why is he saying, receive the Holy Spirit? I think the best explanation for this is that this is an object lesson. And that's not a cop-out. I'm not just making that up. There's good warrant for saying that. Because what, what do you see when you, when you look at Old Testament prophets? What are the kind of things that they do? Well, it's consistent. Old Testament prophets communicate not only with words, but they do all of these crazy actions. They illustrate the message of God. They say the word of God. They give object lessons to to God's message as well. Why is Isaiah walking around naked and barefoot for three years? Because he wants to? No, it's because it's an object lesson. It's a... It's a sign against Egypt and Cush. Ezekiel was told to draw the city of Jerusalem to make siege works in a description that sounds like he's playing with Legos or something. All these little miniature blocks that he's, he's acting it out. And then he lays on his side for 360 days, bearing the punishment assigned to Israel. Then he lays on his his right side for 40 days, bearing the punishment of Judah. So this is an object lesson. Don't forget Hosea and Gomer. Hosea's object lesson in marrying Gomer, this unfaithful bride, and what does it communicate? It communicates God's, God's love, God's faithfulness, God's heartbreak over his bride, Israel. Adulterous Israel. It's nothing new. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. What is Jesus doing when he's turning water into wine? Is it just to save the party? No, it's an object lesson. It's a condemnation of the, the, the emptiness of Israel. And then him being the one who, who fills us with joy. Something new going on there. So prophets... Do object lessons. They speak the word, the oracles of God. They perform these object lessons. This is how Jesus, the ultimate prophet, this is what he's doing. He's giving us an object lesson about what's going to take place at Pentecost. Jesus breathes or he exhales on them. And this illustrates a few things. And this gets really exciting. Um, if you're a fan of C.S. Lewis, you know, that's one thing that comes to mind. If you're a fan of C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, I'm sure Lewis thought of Jesus breathing on them when he describes Aslan, the lion, who is a picture of Christ, breathing on these, these various characters who are 
stone statues in the white witch's courtyard who are dead and he breathes on them and what happens? Life. He brings them to life. The breath of God is life. How does John begin his gospel? He connects Jesus to creation. He causes us to think of Genesis 1 by writing, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John gives us themes of creation concerning Jesus. All things were made through Him. He is the source of life, and life is communicated in both breath, and John also gives us the theme of light. Jesus is the light of men. He is the source of life. He is the, in the beginning, there is darkness, and light shines and overcomes the darkness. And Paul picks up on this theme of creation and, and makes the same connection concerning Not the physical creation, but the spiritual creation in us. When he says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts. Giving us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Another theme of creation has to do with breath. The breath of God. Think of Jesus exhaling, communicating the spirit who was active in creation, hovering over the waters. And then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground. And what did he do? He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Jesus is illustrating the fact that God is the source of life. He created man with a breath. And the new man. So what does this say about this point in time in history? This is a new creation going on here. This is a new new kind of man by the Holy Spirit which proceeds from or is exhaled from the mouth of Jesus. It's coming in the days ahead. Fulfilled at Pentecost. I love seeing these kinds of Biblical puzzle pieces, big themes that that come together. And another piece that comes to mind is that Jesus is the Word. And the Scriptures are the Word of God. And we read that all Scripture is what? It's breathed out. It's breathed out by God. And the Word of God is living it's, it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts, the intentions of the heart. And then, and then it just keeps going on. How does this passage continue? This passage continues once again with a the theme of creation. God as the creator, looking for naked sinners in the garden. This passage, this Hebrews 4 passage goes on. No creature is hidden from his sight. This is what the word of God does. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked. Exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Makes you think of Genesis in the garden. This breath. 
this, this exhale, this object lesson of Jesus communicates so much. Jesus will send the Spirit. It's a new creation. It's a new covenant. It's new life. And as the Spirit fills us, we are animated. We are empowered. We are equipped. God is sovereign. He is our creator. He sees. He rules over over all of creation. So this, this breath of Jesus, it's on the level of a Genesis 1 creation of the cosmos. It's the beginning of a, of a new kingdom. A new creation with a, with a people who are forever indwelt and empowered by God's spirit. And we're a part of that. In the first creation, Adam is the first man who represents all of humanity. And all humans are connected to him and come from him. In this new creation, Jesus is the second Adam who represents all who have faith in him, who are filled and given new life as he exhales the Spirit of God. What else does this this breath remind us of? Well, we should think of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John. Again, the Holy Spirit is is a necessary ingredient to any person coming to saving faith. We see this when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said, and and Jesus told him, truly, truly, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit it's interesting to note that jesus is playing with words here the greek word translated as wind is the same word translated as spirit so jesus said the pneuma blows where it wishes so is everyone who is born of the pneuma and pneuma also can be translated as breath. So when Jesus breathes on his disciples, he was equating his breath with the, the giving of the Holy Spirit. He was illustrating the promise that the Holy Spirit proceeds from him. That when he, he goes, he will send, he will breathe out the Holy Spirit upon his people. This This object lesson is one of the reasons why the church says that the Holy Spirit proceeds not only from the Father, but from the Son. It's a symbolic action that gives his disciples a foretaste of Pentecost when he would pour out the Spirit upon them. His exhale is pneuma or wind or spirit and faith or Being born again is a sovereign work of the Spirit, which proceeds from the Father and the Son. God is the one who effectively calls. 
Being born again is not a matter of natural birth or race or human will or decisions. It's the creative act of God. It's it's like the first creation, the breath of God. In a sense, Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit to every believer. And the reason we receive him is because Jesus breathed life into us. It's like Aslan breathing on captives of the white witch, bringing the dead to life. And let's not forget the context of this. Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit after saying what? After saying that he was sending them. Look at verse 21. As the Father has sent me, even so, I'm sending you. The breath or the the sending of the Holy Spirit is Christ's provision to his church. As they, as we, go into the world. We are not alone. We are not acting by our own strength or with clever strategy. The church goes into the world equipped. And we, let's say, we can't make disciples. We can't save anyone apart from the wind, apart from the breath, apart from the Spirit of God sovereignly granting life that people might be born again. And so we go into the world and we have conversations and we, and we tell them about Jesus. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will take our words and give them life. This is the work of the Spirit. Jesus said the Spirit will, will bear witness of Him. That He glorifies Jesus. So the church's goal is not about spiritual techniques or euphoric experiences of worship. It's not about signs and miracles because because signs and miracles ultimately point to Jesus. It's Jesus. A true work of the Holy Spirit in the church is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. It's being sent by Jesus with the gospel message in utter reliance upon the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. Jesus breathes on his church. He breathes on us to empower us for the ministry of proclaiming the gospel in order to gather and make disciples of Christ. And when we think of evangelism, when we think of sharing the gospel, I think we often forget who's really at work. We look at our situation, our our loved one, and think it's impossible. That it's an impossible situation. And if we think this way, if we're pessimistic and defeated, we need to remember the breath of Jesus. We need to remember the illustration of Ezekiel standing in a valley of dry bones. And God commanded him, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Then turning to the valley, the Lord spoke to the dry bones. Behold, 
I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. So Ezekiel preached, and by the power of the Spirit, God's word went forth, and these bones began to move and come together, and they rose up to be a great congregation of God for his service. It seems impossible. That speaking God's word, the gospel message over something dead can bring it to life. But that's exactly what we do. Spiritually dead people, he brings them to life. This illustrates the miracle of a conversion. The blessing that is ours to be involved in God's work. Jesus, he sends us into the world. Not not standing apart from the world. But like him being in the world and yet not of the world, engaging with, befriending, loving people. And we don't truly love them if we don't tell them about Jesus. And as impossible as it may seem, like dry bones in a valley, God uses our words to breathe life into those who are spiritually dead. So, We're sent by Jesus. We're equipped by Jesus with the Spirit who gives life. Okay, what about verse 23? More questions. Why does Jesus say, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them? If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. One thing this tells us is that the message we speak is not about living your best life now. The message Jesus sends us to give, it's not therapy. It's not a general message that says God loves you. It's not simple inspiration or a strategy for success or an emphasis on on family and raising moral children into responsible adults. No, the gospel message has to do with primarily forgiveness. It has to do with what Jesus says three times in this chapter. Peace be with you. If a person is not forgiven by God, then they're not at peace with God, and they can never truly know the peace of God. So what good is it if a person has the whole world? If a person is moral and nice rich and successful, a real, a real family man or a great mom, an obedient, hardworking teen, and yet not be forgiven by God and lose their soul. What good is it? Any message we bring, any nice and helpful information, if it doesn't address the main problem of being forgiven by God, it's not the gospel. It's not the truly good news. And it won't breathe life into anyone. Jesus sends us into the world with with the life-giving Holy Spirit and we're sent to proclaim forgiveness. The mission of Christ's church has to do with forgiveness. And the translation of this verse can be confusing. I emphasize the word proclaiming. The translation of this verse can be confusing because it sounds like we're the ones 
who do the forgiving, who absolve people of their sins. The ESV Study Bible has a helpful note. Let me read it to you. It says, the expressions, they are forgiven and it is withheld, both represent perfect tense verbs in Greek and could also be translated, they have been forgiven and it has been withheld since the perfect gives the sense of completed past action with continuing results in the present. The idea is not that individual Christians or churches have authority on their own to forgive or not forgive people, but rather that as the church proclaims the gospel message of forgiveness of sins in the power of the Holy Spirit, it proclaims that those who believe in Jesus have their sins forgiven. And that those who do not believe in him do not have their sins forgiven. Which simply reflects what God in heaven has already done. And to confirm this, uh, when we're interpreting scripture, what should we always do? We should always interpret scripture with scripture. We shouldn't build some, some doctrine on a single verse. But it should accord with, it should agree with the whole of Scripture. So quickly, let me just give you three reasons why this speaks of our proclaiming Jesus' forgiveness and not our our granting or absolving people saying they're forgiven. First, God alone has the authority to forgive sins. We see this in Jesus uh, in Mark 2 when he healed the paralyzed man. Instead of challenging the scribes who said, who can forgive sins but God? And uh, calling Jesus a heretic, they were right. And Jesus didn't argue with them. He just healed the man and proved that he was God. So God alone forgives sins. Second, Jesus said this statement about forgiveness in this room um, to a mixed crowd. It wasn't just the apostles there. Um, Roman Catholics who say this gives the church authority to absolve people of sins seem to forget this fact, that Jesus said this to the entire room, a room that wasn't exclusively apostles, but a mix of disciples, including the women that were there. Third, there's no an argument from silence. There's no biblical evidence of this. Read the book of Acts. What are the apostles doing? As we read the book of Acts, these, these disciples, they go and they preach. We don't see anyone doing this. They're not absolving or withholding forgiveness. They're declaring forgiveness in Jesus. They're preaching the gospel. If Jesus had given the apostles this kind of authority, we would expect to see at least one example of it. But instead, we see them declaring the gospel and that any who believe, Receive forgiveness in his name. So in closing, let's remember what an incredible privilege this is. Because it's not as if God is incapable of saving people apart from our help. It's not as if he needs us. No, he's he's blessed us to be a part of the most glorious work possible. We're a part of a new era. A new creation. As the Father sent the Son, so Jesus sends us. 
giving us the Holy Spirit, the source of life, as we proclaim the greatest possible message, the only true message of forgiveness. And Paul gives us the big picture stating, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Let's pray. Our great, our almighty God, we praise you for your glorious grace to us sinners. Forgiven because you have chosen to love us before the foundation of the world. Determining our destiny and that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus. Jesus who breathed life into us so that we might respond in faith. A faith that results in our justification. Our being declared righteous in your sight. Our sins forgiven. Given the promise of glory. And with this in mind, we can say, if God is for us, who can be against us? If you didn't spare your own son, but gave him up for us, how then could we not not also graciously... How then could you not also graciously give us all things? And you have. Oh Lord, this, this truth seems too good to be true. But it is true. It is eternal life to know you, Jesus. Thank you for breathing life into us. For giving us the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the joy and privilege of representing you. That you would make your life-giving appeal through us. May we, as a church, be useful for the sake of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.